You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church, or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, good morning, Word of Life. So glad that you're able to come and be a part of weekend service with us. And of course, um, massive happy Father's Day. So glad that you're um, here. Hopefully the dads are getting celebrated and spoiled in some way today. Um, Typically, uh, it has become a tradition that I'll share dad jokes as a part of Father's Day, and I'm breaking from my own tradition. Um, That wasn't a joke. (laughs) As I've told people this week, actually, I'm not gonna be sharing dad jokes. Um, People have actually been depressed. it is what it is. But I really did want to take a moment, and um, rather than telling dad jokes, which will probably happen in the next couple of weeks, I wanted to acknowledge that um, Father's Day is important. Fatherhood, dads are important, um, and we should celebrate that, and we should acknowledge it. Um, and I think for today, I think we should acknowledge it with a level of seriousness. Um, in the last few years in the Wood Home, we've become a real baseball family. Moses plays in a Little League team, and he's determined to play for the Yankees one day. And Elijah, he plays on a special needs team, and he loves getting to hang out with his friends while they play. And Megan played softball as a teenager. And, uh, you know, all summer long, it feels like we're either watching the kids play baseball, we're either watching a Yankees game, or we're playing catch, or the kids are playing a pickup game with the neighborhood kids, or we're practicing in a park close by the house. But uh, it just feels like our house and our life is just filled with baseball. So when I saw this um, a while ago online, it, it stuck with me, and I wanted to share it with you. And the team would share, there's a... Uh, you know, bucket of baseballs, and there's a note that goes with it. And I'll read out what the note says, because I don't think you'll be able to read it from your seat. But the note reads, free, hope someone can use some of these baseballs in the batting cages. I found them clearing out my garage. I pitched them to my son and grandson for countless rounds. My son is now 46, my grandson is 23. I'm 72, and what I won't give to pitch a couple of buckets to them, but they've both moved away. If you're a father, cherish these times. You won't believe how quickly they will be gone. God bless. P.S. Give them a hug and tell them you love them every chance you get. Now, this picture, it, it made its way to social media and it went viral. Some of you may have even seen it before today, but... I think the reason it resonated with people is that it reinforces the truth that fatherhood matters. Dads, what you do matters. It makes a difference. It has a lifelong impact. Fathers, we applaud you. We appreciate your hard work. We appreciate the challenges of fatherhood, and I hope that our church supports you and encourages you. This Father's Day, dads, rise to the challenge. Be the best dad you can. Don't phone it in. Be the best dad you can. You may have had a a difficult or complicated or even a non-existent relationship with your father. My friends, make the decision to turn it around for the next generation. Decide that you're going to show up and be consistent. You're going to love those kids and pitch a ton of baseballs, kick a bunch of soccer balls, throw footballs, go to dance recitals, learn how to braid hair, admire artwork that doesn't look like anything on this planet. (laughs) Teach them how to light fires. Teach them how to mow the lawn. And in the words of Martin Sheen in the West Wing, Teach your kids how to whistle because your wife won't do that. Show your sons, dads, show your sons how to be fine young men and teach your daughters to have a strong sense of self-esteem and unchecked ambition and demonstrate that God first is the best way to live. Be a role model and do whatever you can to help them be better and stronger and healthier than you are because fatherhood matters. Happy Father's Day, dads. We're continuing today this um, series that we started just a couple of weeks ago on this whole idea of um, overcoming and, you know, overcome and what that looks like and what it means from a scriptural perspective. And this came up because um, Megan and I, we were talking through what we were going to do for the summer. And as we've already mentioned in service today, we've got a a long summer series coming up starting in July, looking at the um, being set apart through the lens of the Holy, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
So we were talking about what should we do for June, and it was really Megan kind of brought to my attention and really kind of put the thought in my mind of, you know, we really should think about something that's positive and uplifting and encouraging, just listening to the stories of people in our church and listening to the congregation, listening to you guys and what life is like for you right now. And it just seems that this is the right time and it is the good time to have something uplifting and encouraging because there's a lot of fights going on right now. And so Megan and I continued talking about it, we prayed about it, and we agreed that, yeah, let's spend some time and let's go through this idea of overcoming coming. So this whole series about being uh, overcoming, we're a few weeks in, um, but I'm going to tell you, I think that today's message from the messages that I've shared, this is the most important one. I started off this week um, and I had a scripture in mind from Romans 12. I had this scripture in mind. I was like, this is what we're going to speak on this weekend. And I spent days studying, researching, looking into it like I always do. And I love doing it. It's a, a joy to do that, to prepare for a Sunday. And I spend time and I would come home and Megan would say, oh, you know, how are you feeling about your message for Sunday? I was like, oh, it's just, there's something missing. Something's not clicking here. But I was diligent. I kept going, kept going. And finally, um, Thursday afternoon, I just threw up my hands and said, Lord, this is not what I'm supposed to speak on Sunday. What have you got? And very quickly, I got a brand new message. So I've written an entire message that will never get preached, but I've also got one to share with you this morning. But I really believe that this is the right message for the right time. And so I'm asking, have your ears open. Like, just re receive what you have today. I'm going to end up reading a ton of Bible verses today. So a lot of what we're going to go through is just me reading straight from the Scriptures. And I believe there's power in that. I believe there's encouragement in that. I believe this whole idea by being an overcomer is going to register with someone today because we're just going to look at what the Scriptures have to say. So I shared these verses from week one a few weeks ago now. This one from 1 John, starting in chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is the one who is victorious and overcomes the world? It is the one who believes and recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's a verse from the Psalms. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. And from the book of Proverbs, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. Today, I want to consider the importance of bouncing back. Bouncing back. From the passage in 1 John and the line from the psalm and the proverb, it makes it clear that there will be opposition and trials and difficult days and unfair seasons and devastation. There will be things that we have to fight through. Nobody will lack things to overcome. They'll be big, they'll be small, there'll be things that will get you sympathy from everyone around you, and there are things that will happen that you hope no one ever finds out about, but there will certainly be things that you and I have to overcome. One of the things that I shared in week one, something I heard from a preacher a long time ago that stuck with me from a pastor called Rich Wilkerson, is that a Christian is never down, a Christian is either up or getting up. What a great perspective. We're never just down, we've never given up, but we will continually have things that will try to kick us down, that will have the opportunity to keep us down. My friend, where you are is not where you have to stay. Where you are headed is not where you have to end up. What you've accepted as inevitable doesn't have to be the end of the story. How it has been going doesn't have to be how it will keep going. The reality of today does not have to be the reality of tomorrow or next week or next year. And um, I, I may have mentioned this before, you may have heard me talk about it before, um, but I, I grew up, I spent my teenage years and I wanted to be um, a film director or a screenwriter. And so I have somewhat of a, you know, amateur hobby in sort of looking at this and studying this. And I read a book a number of years ago that looked at um, how movie plots are laid out and how you structure a story and things like that. Again, it's just somewhat of a hobby, I guess. But how a story is formed. And there's something that you will find in every single movie. If you find an exception, it will be a far outlier, like the vast, vast, vast majority of almost, I, I'm, I don't want to say all films, but I'm tempted to say all movies will have something where there's a level of tension, there's something to resolve, there's a challenge, there's something to overcome. It, it's just a staple part of a story. And so in a movie, this idea of, you know, everything's just fine, there's no problems, we're just watching people live their lives, that doesn't exist. There's always a level of overcoming. There's always a level of tension. For example... The rebels have to destroy the Death Star. Dorothy has to get back home. Michael needs to defeat the five families. Marty has to get back to 1985. In a romantic comedy, they need to fall in love, have an argument, and then beat traffic to the airport to stop the girl flying to another city. The superhero needs to stop the bad guy. The cop needs to solve the case. 
For a movie to capture our attention for two hours, or a novel to keep us turning the pages, or a TV show to keep us binge watching, it needs unresolved tension. For a story to work, there needs to be tension, or struggle, or a mission, or a mystery, or a chase, or a pursuit. Psychologists will explain that we're drawn to stories for that reason. We all, humanity, we identify and understand the nature of struggle and the need to overcome. Indeed, throughout human history, all across the world, multiple cultures, any way you can think of, stories may differ in style or characters or length or genre, but all over the world, the need to overcome is always present because it is indicative of our humanity. This is true all over the world and all throughout history. This need to tell stories about overcoming, it reflects something about us. We all know and we all have experienced that a large part of life is overcoming. And it's for this reason, the verses like the passage from 1 John affect us so deeply. And with all that in mind, let's read this again. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world, our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is the one who is victorious and overcomes the world? It is the one who believes and recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So with all that in mind, we're going to talk about the need to bounce back. And a question that came to me and a question I want to put to you is, what happens when we don't bounce back? What happens when something in life will happen that keeps us down and gets us down and instead of bouncing back, instead of rising up, what happens? It's that feeling of being stuck. It's spending years regretting a bad decision. It's believing that a bad season is how it's always gonna be. It's giving an addiction the final word. It means never exploring your full potential. It's living with an artificial ceiling. It's letting the untrue label that people put on you become a fact. It's letting a tragic circumstance harden your heart. Not bouncing back damages relationships, it affects your future, and it's a difficult way to go through life. Overcome and bounce back. Something important to know with all this is that it does not matter why you're down. The reason, whatever it is that has caused you to be down, it doesn't matter. There's a call to get back up. The reason you're down might be your fault. It might be someone else's. You might have done something shocking or it may have been an innocent mistake. You may have been a victim that doesn't have any blame at all. You might be down because of an accident or something malicious. It might absolutely be someone else's fault. It might be nobody's fault, but life has gotten you down and the fight to get back up seems too much. To help reconsider this whole thing and the importance of bouncing back, we're gonna look at some examples from the Bible of people who bounced back and hopefully it will inspire us to think about being down and getting back up. It will help us think about the future and what it means to bounce back and why we should bounce back differently. So let's take a moment and let's pray. Would you pray with me for a moment? And uh, I'm gonna believe the Lord's gonna really grab a hold of somebody's heart as we get into the scripture. So Lord, as we spend time looking at examples from the Bible of people bouncing back, of people not just laying down and rolling over, but Lord, but people who fought through and people who got back up and saw your promises come to pass in their life. Lord, may it inspire us. May it grab a hold of our hearts. Lord, I'm praying and I'm believing that you're gonna speak to people. Lord, may the words of Tom Wood fade to the background, but your words grab a hold of people in this moment. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen. So I've got a few examples. We're going to read a lot of passages from the scriptures, and it may seem like I'm flying through these, and I apologize, but, um, you know, we want you at least out of here by dinner time, if not lunchtime. But the first person I want to consider is the character of Ruth. Ruth was widowed and uncertain about her future and decided to move countries with her mother-in-law to Judah. It appears from the biblical account that they didn't move there to thrive or rebuild or start a new life, but simply it was the only way they could survive was to get out of the land and the country they were in and instead move to Judah. And Ruth 1 verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. This is a lady called Orpah. She had two daughters-in-law. They were both married to her two sons. Her husband died and then her two sons died. So these three widows are making the journey back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, 
Why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course not. No, my daughters, things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. So here's Ruth, lost her husband, absolute devastation. Ruth is our example of Ruth is someone who overcame, bounced back from devastation. Bounced back from devastation. She was a widow, living in poverty, no hope. The only real family that she was connected to and the only family she was committed to was a mother-in-law who was also a widow and also in poverty. Her sister-in-law, she turned back and she went back and took the easy route, but Ruth decided, I'm going to stick with my mother-in-law. Absolute devastation. The rest of the story describes how Ruth meets a man called Boaz and they fall in love and end up getting married. And Ruth 4, so towards the end of the story, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your health and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, now at least Naomi has a son and they name him Obed. And he became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David. And this is the genealogical record of their ancestor, Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Now, if you fast forward about two-thirds of your Bible and you get to Matthew 1, Boaz was the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Jump down to verse 15. Matham was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. From absolute devastation, being widowed, facing poverty, no idea what's going to come next, the bounce back meant that she got to be a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. God used her in an incredible way to be a part of his grand story that he was telling humanity. That's the power of the bounce back from devastation. Can you imagine when she was at the absolute lowest, grieving the possibility and the likelihood of never having children, that she would one day be a part of this grand story that has changed the world? That's the power of God being a part of the bounce back even in the midst of devastation. Moving on to the next one. Talking about the woman at the well. One day is Jesus is in Samaria, which is highly unusual and it caused some controversy, but while he's alone at a well, he starts a conversation with a woman. A woman who's there at midday sun because she didn't want to be there at the same time as the other women in town. Typically, the women of the town would go to a well early in the morning to avoid the midday sun, the hot sun beating down on them, but this woman didn't want to be around the others. So she went by herself at midday. It turns out that this woman is the type of person everyone is gossiping about. Through her conversation with Jesus, we learn that she's been sexually immoral, scandalously, by their standards then. It's important that as we listen to her reputation and we learn about her life, she wasn't down because of someone else's fault. The account, it reads like she had decided to live her life in a way that would bring scrutiny and humiliation, but whether someone is down because of their own fault or someone else's, it doesn't matter because the heart of God is the same. In 2 Peter, it says that God wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to leave behind whatever is putting distance between himself and humanity so that we can individually live in a restored and healed relationship with him. This story is a wonderful example of this in action. 
But the woman at the well is an example of overcome and bounce back from shame. Overcome and bounce back from shame. We're going to pick this up partway through the conversation with Jesus. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Despite the shame of her past, this single conversation with Jesus turned it around. She was hiding from the people of town by going to get her water at midday, and now she's running into town to tell them all about what she just experienced. Picking this back up in verse 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear this message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. You know, word of life, we talk a lot about being faithful and effective. It doesn't get any more effective than this. From shame and embarrassment and humiliation to going and telling the village all about Jesus, it's an inspirational revival that we saw break out. From a place of shame, there was bounce back to being used by God mightily. We also are going to look at Peter. We read this last week as well, but it bears reading again. Mark 14, 27. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter emphatically said, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you, and all the others vowed the same. Unfortunately, Peter fails and doesn't live up to his big declaration. After Jesus is arrested in verse 66, we see this. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Just then a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Despite his big declaration of extreme loyalty, when it was crunch time, Peter collapsed. He turned his back on Jesus. He rejected his master. He rejected his Lord just to save his own skin. It was failure. That's why he broke down and wept. Is there anyone here that doesn't know the hurt and despair from being confronted with your own failure. Of course, this isn't about failing to achieve something, but rather a moral or ethical failure. Not a mistake, failure. Giving in to temptation, ignoring Jesus' lordship in our lives, rejecting the truth for a lie, compromising because of fear or peer pressure. When we read that Jesus broke down and wept, I get it. That strong response to acknowledging your own weakness and failure. But this wasn't the end of Peter's story, just like it's not the end of yours. John 21, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. 
The other stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded nets for the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter. Jesus asked the failure. He asked the weak. He asked the untrustworthy. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked a question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And Jesus told him, follow me. I remember just this morning as I was preparing and getting ready to be here that when the women got to the tomb uh, on that very first Easter morning, they see the angel. And the angel said, now go and tell the disciples, including Peter. Peter literally gets name jacked. And it's a great reminder that in the middle of failure, you're still called by name. Peter, overcome and bounce back from failure. What happened after the breakfast on the beach? Peter having this conversation with Jesus and Jesus calling him uh, Simon, son of John, which is his original name. Simon, do you love me? And Peter, yeah, I do, I do, I do. This kind of acted as a restoration for Peter. The three times that he denied Jesus is undone by the three times Jesus is inviting him to say, do you love me? And what happened after this breakfast? Well, Peter stepped forward on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 got saved. It was Peter who met with Cornelius and learned how the gospel blew open the door to the kingdom of God for anyone regardless of background or ethnicity. It was Peter who was seen as a pillar of the early church. It was Peter who would write two letters that are included in the New Testament that you and I have today. Ultimately, Peter would die for his death as Jesus alluded to in the passage that we read and he would be crucified. This is a strong reminder that your failure isn't final. Your failure isn't final. The next person we're going to look at is the woman caught in adultery. John 8, starting verse 1, Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. This woman humiliated publicly, and as we'll read, it was all a charade to try and discredit Jesus, but she was also defenseless. As we'll also read from the rest of the account, nobody, not even Jesus, is trying to make the case that she's innocent. She had been caught in the act of adultery and was dragged through town to face the judgment of a hypocritical mob. Back to our passage. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now, we have no idea what he wrote in the dust, but obviously it was enough to provoke a conviction. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. The woman caught in adultery, overcome and bounced back from guilt. This is not the end of the woman's story. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them contend you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The bounce back from guilt. Bounce back from those things that we do, that I've done, you've done, our li my list of regrets, your list of regrets, whatever may be on there. Whatever regrets we have, whatever guilt we may be carrying, all those things we've done that have put a distance between us and God, all those things we've done. Go and sin no more. It's easy to read that, and I believe that many have read that in the past, and they said that this is, you know, use this as like a religious club to beat people over the head. 
But I don't think that's the heart of what Jesus has said. I think this reads more along the lines of, your sin has brought you here. Your sinful decisions, your decisions to live the way that you're living, the, the way that you've conducted yourself, the choices that you've made, it's brought you to this point where a bunch of hypocritical maniacs are ready to stone you to death. That's not what I want for you. I don't want these religious psychos stoning you to death. I don't want that for you. I want you to live forgiven. I want you to live free. I want you to live with a distance between you and the past. I want you to live a life that I've got for you. But if you keep doing what you've done, it's a matter of time until the religious people grab you again and you're right back here. And the next time, I might not be here to stop them. Go and sin no more. It's not a religious club to beat people over the head. This is Jesus saying, sin has brought you to this point. And this point is ashamed, naked, dragged through the streets, humiliated and alone on the edge of being stoned to death. And I don't want you here. It's not the life I have for you. It's not where my promises will lead you. So please, stop. Stop. Go and sin no more. Live in freedom. I've said this before, and there's a 100% chance I'll say it again. We don't hate sin because we're angry, judgmental people. We hate sin because sin ruins people's lives, and they destroys people, and we love people. Because we love people, we hate the effect that sin has on their lives. Another example we're going to look at is Joseph. This is after Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Genesis 39. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't have to worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was very handsome and well-built young man. And part of his wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came, grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that he was hold, uh, she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. Joseph, we see, overcome and bounce back from injustice. There were two people who worked closely with Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, who were also in prison with Joseph. Those two men, they had unusual dreams, and while they were wondering what these dreams meant, they met Joseph, and he was able to give the spiritual interpretation. One of the men was released from prison and went back to the palace to work for the Pharaoh. And years later, the Pharaoh himself had an unusual dream, and the servant remembered that Joseph had an ability to interpret dreams. So Joseph is brought up from the prison. The Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph, inspired by God, gives an interpretation of that dream to Pharaoh. But before all of this, before having an audience with Pharaoh, Joseph needed to endure prison. After years of being wrongly imprisoned, he got his chance. Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph has the chance to help Pharaoh. And Joseph hits the nail on the head. We're going to pick this up in Genesis 41, 37. 
Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Yesterday, he was wasting away in a prison. Tonight, he'll be dining in the palace. After 13 years of injustice, he gets an incredible promotion. That is a dramatic bounce back. Also want to look at Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Elijah had his famous showdown on Mount Carmel where he let everyone know that the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth is for real and him and him alone is worthy of worship. As part of that showdown, 450 prophets of Baal were killed. And after three and a half years of no rain, Elijah prayed for rain and it rained. And in 1 Kings 19, we find out that King Ahab is not happy about it. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel, his wife, everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveled all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now, I want to say this with the appropriate amount of sensitivity, but Elijah shows us that we can overcome and bounce back from depression. Now, depression is not something that anyone should take lightly, and I don't pretend to speak as an expert or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I have seen many people find freedom and overcome depression. As we read these verses that follow, I, I encourage you to look for the hope that's being returned. Look for the ways that God brings comfort and how he sustains Elijah and how the Lord brings a different perspective. We can see Elijah going from hopeless to a renewed sense of hope. We can see God giving comfort, sustenance, and a renewed perspective. Carrying on from where we left off in verse 5, then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some baked bread on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more for the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. As Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to become king of Amram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphrath, from the town of Abel-Meloah, to replace you as my prophet. 
Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed to Baal or kissed him. Now in this passage, we read about God providing food for Elijah, the strength to get through another day. We read about God speaking to him in a whisper, giving comfort and assurance. We read about a renewed perspective that there's 7,000 others. You're not alone, despite how it may feel. You know, to this day, Elijah is recognized as one of the true heroes of the Old Testament, which is why it's a great idea to name your oldest son Elijah. But up to this moment, the absolute despair and depression that Elijah has been a part of, what's been plaguing him, despite the numerous miracles that, would, that he would be a part of, after Elijah bounced back, he saw more miracles. He called fire from heaven twice to defeat his enemies. He parted the river Jordan in two so he could walk across. And then he handed the responsibilities over to Elisha before getting caught up in a whirlwind to heaven. As serious as depression is, with the right help, with renewed perspective, divine sustenance, and God's comfort, I know you can find freedom. Ruth, overcome and bounce back from devastation. The woman at the well, overcome and bounce back from shame. Peter, overcome and bounce back from failure. The woman caught in adultery, overcome and bounce back from guilt. Joseph, overcome and bounce back from injustice. Elijah, overcome and bounce back from depression. Now the six stories I shared with you, they involve an outcome that we would all want. Everyone, we want to be purposeful and we want to be effective and forgiven and have a redefined view of sin and we want to be promoted and renewed freedom and to be sustained and have a sense of hope and to break free from depression. But the cost is bouncing back from devastation. The cost is getting through the toughest seasons of life. It's difficult sometimes to break free from shame and overcoming failure and letting people down. This is the cost. It means rethinking the consequences of sin despite being unfairly victimized and living with injustice, just keep going. Keep being strong, getting help, finding hope in the face of depression. That's what it means to bounce back. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is the one who is victorious and overcomes the world? It is the one who believes and recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. There are example after example of people who bounce back in the Bible. You may have some examples in your mind right now that I haven't looked at today, but it's also worth recognizing that there are people in the Bible who did not bounce back. They got down and that's where they stayed. King Saul, he died in humiliation. He had every opportunity to be a great king and wasted all of it. Ahab, he amassed huge amounts of wealth and he was extremely politically powerful. But long after he died, he was still remembered as the most evil king in the Old Testament. Judas, one of Jesus' best friends, he would have heard Jesus preaching over and over again about the importance of forgiveness and the power of forgiveness and the forgiveness they can have. He could have had the same opportunity Peter had to find forgiveness for his betrayal. Instead, he wasted it and never bounced back. There are many other examples, both in the Bible, throughout history, and I'm sure in our own lives of people who never bounced back. They never overcame the reasons they were down. But from the biblical examples that we've looked at today, there might be many reasons that someone's down or struggling or fighting. But I wonder how many of us are struggling with devastation or shame or failure or guilt or an injustice or depression. No matter what reason we're down, we can bounce back. This can end differently than it started. I want to look at the story of Jacob wrestling God in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Genesis 32. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man said. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been spared. 
the sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Now there's so much that could be shared in this passage and there are many great sermons on this passage. But what I want to highlight for us today is that after this wrestling match, after his hip had gotten knocked out of its socket, what we just read, he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Jacob overcome and bounced back with a limp. Bounced back with a limp. If you've been kicked, if you've been down, if you've had unfair circumstances, if you've been, if you've had to endure the consequences of your own bad choices, if it's entirely your fault that you're down or whether it's someone else's fault or whether it's no one's fault, it's an accident, it's outside circumstances, whatever. No matter what, you're down, get up. Get up. For many, it will mean walking with a limp. Jacob walked with a limp. It's easier to stay down than to get up and walk with a limp. But my friends, I would rather walk dragging one leg behind me than stay down when God is calling us and giving us the opportunity and the empowerment to get up. If you're down, if life has got you down, I don't know what the reasons are. Maybe it's entirely your fault. Maybe someone has been awful and evil to you. I don't know, but you're down. You can get up. The story doesn't have to end with you down. It could well mean for the rest of your life, you're limping because you got injured, you got smacked, you got bashed, you're down, but man, you're not out for the count. You're not defeated. You got up and you dragged a leg behind you and you kept on going. I know people that were pastors, they did some stupid stuff, they had an affair, they embezzled money, whatever. They got up again. The rest of their life, a part of their story is they have to openly admit, this is what I did. It's a part of my story now. That's walking with a limp. Forgiving someone that does not deserve forgiveness, walking with a limp. Accepting responsibility, walking with a limp. I have another friend, became a Christian, confessed a crime, ended up in jail, walking with a limp. Walking with a limp. I would rather walk with a limp than stay down. But make no mistake, it's wildly easier to stay down. There was um, one time when we lived in Montana. I was up early and I was fixing a cup of coffee in the kitchen and um, I just happened to look out our window and there was snow on the ground. And the thought hit me, I don't know why, it's not even a particularly profound thought, but it stuck with me, is uh, I just realized, you know, in, in July, our snow's not going to be there. I've kind of had a similar thought, you know, as I've driven into the parking lot here at the church, it's, you know, kind of out here where, you know, the plow truck will come and, you know, the snowbank will just grow and grow over the, you know, the winter months. And, you know, I'll drive in and I swear, like, there have been times where I looked at it, I was like, that's going to be here till August. But that reminder for me in Montana as I looked out and I looked at the snow that was covered in our backyard and I just thought to myself, like, it's not going to be there in July. It was a huge reminder, as simple as it is. It's not deep. It's just a simple thought, but it was just a great reminder to me that seasons are seasons. It can feel like this is it forever now. This is it. Being down, this is it. This is just my life now. There's the promise of a bounce back. There's a promise of a bounce back. From the examples we read, we found people that bounced back and found purpose, that they were effective, they found forgiveness, they found restoration, that there was a redefined view of sin, that there was promotion and freedom, that people were sustained, that people had a renewed hope. And we can do all of it, even if it means doing it with a limp. Ruth, overcome and bounce back from devastation. The woman at the well, overcome and bounce back from shame. Peter, overcome and bounce back from failure. The woman caught in adultery, overcome and bounce back from guilt. Joseph, overcome and bounce back from injustice. Elijah, overcome and bounce back from depression. And Jacob, overcome and bounce back with a limp. I've got a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I encourage you to do so. Maybe you'll have a chance this week to think about it, talk about it with somebody and pray about it. But the first thing is, is what's causing you to be down at the moment? What's causing you to be down at the moment? Devastation, shame, failure, guilt, injustice, depression. What is it that's causing you to be down? 
and remember what we've talked about. Remember what we've seen from these examples from the scriptures that you can get up. From that proverb, we may fall down seven, just get up eight. You're never down. You're either up or getting up. Second question for you. What does walking with a limp mean for you? You may have picked up a few scars. You may have picked up a few battle wounds. You may have learned a painful lesson. But what does walking with a limp mean for you? For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is the one who is victorious and overcomes the world? It is the one who believes and recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Everyone born of God, everyone that is born again is victorious. It is our continuing and persistent faith in Jesus. It's because we believe and recognize that He is the Son of God, we can overcome the world, we can bounce back. I invite everyone here to stand. I'm gonna pray. And I particularly want to pray for anybody here as we've talked about is this being born again that helps us be victorious so we can overcome the world. And being born again, it means that you've asked Jesus to be, bring you new life. It means stepping into a relationship with Him. It means leaving the old you behind so you can embrace all that He has for you. It means having the courage and the honesty to acknowledge, I've messed up, I've sinned, I've pushed God away. And I want to accept Jesus' invitation to have all of that forgiven, all washed away, so I can move forward in a relationship with Him. That's what it means to be born again. And you may be here and you may have never made that decision before. I made that decision 20 years ago and I can tell you it's the best decision I've ever made in my life. In the past 20 years, I've had ups, I've had downs, but I've never once regretted my decision to follow Jesus. So I want to ask everyone here, if you want to just close your eyes and bow in your heads. This gives some discretion to people around you. It gives us some privacy and it helps us focus on what matters right now. But if you're here and you're ready and you're honest enough to say, Tom, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but I want to today. I want to make that decision. I want to start following him. I want to start figuring this life of faith out. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you. If you could just put your hand up. I promise I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Amen. Thank you. Anyone else here? Amen. Anybody else? We're going to pray together as a church. If you want to be included in that prayer, I'd love to know who you are. If you could just put your hand up, I'd love to pray with you. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Wonderful. Anyone else today? Amen. Proud of you. Amen. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with people that have made the best decision any one of us can ever make. Amen. And we pray this prayer at the end of every service. And I want to invite all of us to pray this, and especially those of you that put your hand up and you're praying this for the first time. Come on, everyone, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we celebrate? Amen.